following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. All right. Well, it is the first Sunday of Advent, as I mentioned a little while ago. We are pressing on toward Christmas. And so as we begin our uh, quest to dive into the Word and see what it might have for us today, uh, I'd like to ask you to think with me about the greatest gift you ever received, all right? Um, It may have been when you were a kid, you know, whatever your Red Ryder BB gun was. Did you ever have your parents do that hide the last gift thing? I had that happen a few times. Um, Maybe it was something more recent in your adult life, if you're an adult, uh, and was not a toy at all, but something very memorable and meaningful and sentimental. Whatever it is, I think for most of us, you probably can think of it pretty quickly. I want you to be thinking about the best gift that you ever received. And as we press on toward Christmas throughout this season of Advent, the purpose is for us to observe a season of waiting and anticipation. That's what Advent is for. Advent is a word that means coming. We anticipate the coming of Jesus. And sometimes when we observe Advent, we think of that waiting as a joyous expectancy. Like a kid waiting for a present, we know, we know that what's coming is God's great gift to the world. Other times, and this year will be one of these years, it's a more painful waiting, a a longing for change that comes through Christ's incarnation, through his ministry, through his death, and through his resurrection. In one of the Advent readings, which uh, we won't encounter actually until the third week of Advent, The prophet Isaiah tells us that God wants to bring good news to the oppressed and to bind up the brokenhearted. And uh, the leadership team and I looked at these texts back in May when we were at our retreat planning the whole year, and this phrase stood out to us. It just glowed on the page for us, bind up the brokenhearted. Because as people steeped in Christ's redemption... We believe that we are called to be agents of good news, of healing, and hope. Not in some abstract way, but right in our city where we see so much despair. And this tension between despair and hope in our city is our focus for Advent in 2014. So that's the first tension that we will live with for the next four weeks, between despair and hope. There's also a second tension that we will navigate a little differently each week, and that's the tension between the words of Scripture and current events. So our theme for the whole ministry year is that we want to be shaped by the words of Scripture. We want to be steeped in the Bible's story, 
all year long in all that we do. And this is no exception. So we want to hear from the witness of the scriptures during this season. We also want to hear the witness of what's going on in the world around us. Because if we have only one or the other of those things, I don't think that God's ultimate plan for the world is going to be so easy to accomplish. Not like it's going to be easy in the first place. We need both the witness of Scripture and a keen awareness of what's going on in our world. And, and where those two things meet is this tension between hope and despair. We want to be thinking particularly about our city. And so each week we will have a particular area of focus about despair and about hope. And this week's dual focus is the despair that comes from institutionalized racism. This is something that has been uh, at the forefront of our minds more than ever for the past few months. And the hope that comes from being people who receive spiritual gifts from the Holy Spirit. Now, if you look at those two topics and think, how on earth is that going to happen? You are not alone. We are riding this roller coaster together. (laughs) We're going to do our best. Um, For this week, and I can't say how this will go in future weeks just yet, but for this week, we're going to have a team-taught message. Uh, In a moment, I'm going to invite up Dr. Melody Boyd, uh, a member of Artisan who's also a professor of sociology at SUNY Brockport. And I'm going to ask her to share some of her expertise about what's happening in our country and in our city. And then, after she's done that, I will come back up and uh, share from Scripture about a possible response to those realities. So despair and hope again. But before I invite Melody up, I want to mention our big cornerstone event for this series. It is this Friday at 6 p.m. You may recall that we did an Advent art commission around the themes of despair and hope in our city. And at 6 p.m. on Friday, we will um, open that reception. We'll have a reception and an opening for uh, for that artwork. Um, the, the, the center piece of the, of this, um, this display is going to be a work done by Ariana D'Angelo, which is absolutely stunning, and I can't wait for you to see it. So please come on Friday at 6. We'll have wine and cheese and crackers and things uh, to open that, um, that art display and commission. Immediately following that, we're going to have a film and discussion specifically related to the issues that we're talking about today. So the film is the documentary, uh, um, what's the month? I couldn't remember the month. July 1964, which is about the race riots in Rochester at that time. And uh, so we'll show the film, and then we'll have a discussion panel um, with some of our friends from Northeast Area Development, who we've met before, who sat on our panel during our series on racial reconciliation last fall, uh, including Wallace Smith, who was present at those uh, riots in 1964. So you get a chance to hear from him what that was firsthand and what it meant to our city, what it continues to mean to our city. So I know, I know so much that this is a really busy season, but if at all possible, please come out for this event this Friday. Art opening at 6, film and discussion to follow at 7, 
and invite your friends. This, this is something that people who would never come to church might come to see if they love good art, if they love good film, if they are concerned about the, the topic at hand. It's a really, really wonderful opportunity for you to invite some people um, into this place to see what, what God is doing um, in and among us. As far as the art goes, we are still accepting, uh, we have room for a few more open call submission pieces. So if you've got photographs or other work that you could contribute, um, please talk to me or to Ellen Sofa, who's right here. Um, we have room for a few more. We'll be okay if we don't have more, but we, ha- we do have room for some more. Uh, and then uh, the other thing that you can do, anticipating the folks from need coming, is we want to bless them by shopping at the Freedom Market. And I wanted to tell you about that now so that you didn't miss it, because sometimes the announcement times get a little chaotic in this place, if you haven't noticed. So um, you'll hear more about that, but just uh, remember that we're asking members of the artisan community we want to get 50 of you to go and spend some bucks at the Freedom Market. Uh, and we'll tell you more about that in a little bit. Okay. So now um, I would like to invite and ask you to welcome Dr. Melody Boyd. Good morning. Um, I'm going to start off by reading an excerpt from a reflection on Advent from the Christian Resource Institute that I think ties in with what Scott just shared about this being a time of longing and anticipation. In the Eastern Orthodox Church tradition, the season of Advent is a time of fasting and penitence for sins, similar to the season of Lent, which, as a side note, is a little different how we've traditionally done it in Western Christianity. There's a yearning for deliverance from the evils of the world, first expressed by Israelite slaves in Egypt as they cried out from their bitter oppression. It is the cry of those who have experienced the tyranny of injustice in a world under the curse of sin, and yet who have hope of deliverance by a God who has heard the cries of oppressed slaves and brought deliverance. The season of Advent has come to be celebrated more in terms of expectation or anticipation Yet the anticipation of the coming of the Messiah throughout the Old Testament and Judaism was not in connection with remembrance of individual sins. Rather, it was in the context of oppression and injustice, the longing for redemption, not from personal guilt and sin, but from the systemic evil of the world expressed in evil empires and tyrants. It is in that sense that all creation longs for its redemption, as we witness the evil that so dominates our world. So as Scott said, our context for talking about Advent now is thinking about both scripture and current events. Um, And as Advent is a time of celebrating the coming of the Messiah, I thought one of the things as we're thinking about Advent and what it means to us is to remember the ways in which Jehovah means different things. And Jehovah There's different ways that we can um, understand who God is through the name Jehovah. Jehovah means the Lord, my deliverer, the Lord, my redeemer. And I want us to kind of hold those as I talk through the issues um, that we'll discuss today. So Advent is a time of rejoicing, as as we sang. It's a rejoicing in the coming of our Savior, our Redeemer. And it's also a time of rejoicing and hoping for the coming of our world's Redeemer, our world savior, not just our own. Jesus entered a world of systemic oppression. He came to liberate, not us individually, but our world as a whole. 
redemption and liberation for whole, not just for us personally. And we are to be active participants in this coming of the kingdom of heaven to here on earth. And Scott will talk more about that um, in his piece, about our individual roles in that. So as we say in the Lord's Prayer, may your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Yet the reality is that Christianity has not always done a very good job of this. Christianity's has been used as justification for all kinds of acts of oppression. And the reality is that we as Christians, or people who are seeking to know or to learn about Christ, we are part of a system in which some of us benefit and some of us don't. We are all part of this context of oppression, of injustice. We're all part of the context of a system in which evil exists, and also part of a context in which there's hope for redemption. So that tension, as Scott said, is something that we are all part of. I think we need to let the weight of injustice press on our souls. We don't want it to crush us, and that's the piece about the hope of the coming Messiah. But we don't want to skip over that longing, over that grieving, over that letting the weight of injustice in the world crush, on, crush us. Not crush us, sorry, not crush us, but press on us and encourage us to learn more about that, particularly from the perspectives of people who've experienced injustice more than others. So today I'm going to talk about institutional racism. This is sometimes called structural racism or systemic racism. Um, I teach an entire class on this at Brockport, so I'm going to give a very mini version. Um, But this is an example of current issues of oppression and systems of evil and inequality in our nation. Racism is not a thing of the past. It's something that's embedded, particularly in this country, in the fabric of our, of our society from the beginning of, of the foundations of this country. And it still plays out. It's sometimes less obvious than it used to be, but it's still extremely powerful. We're all part of a system, as I said, in which some of us benefit and some of us do not. And we're all part of it, whether we like it or not, whether we recognize it or not. And in the next few weeks, we'll be looking at some of the ways that institutional racism plays out in our city and around our country, issues of poverty, education, housing, health, employment. And today I'm going to talk about criminal justice system and mass incarceration. So this is one example of institutional racism in this country, not the only one, but one. And it's an often unexamined issue, yet is extremely powerful and devastating to the lives of so many. We've also seen the criminal justice system front and center in our news and our news feeds this week um, with what's been happening in Ferguson, and I'll talk about that shortly. But for some context in terms of the criminal justice system in this country, the United States has the highest incarceration rate in the entire world. It specifically targets racial minorities and poor people, and it's especially invasive in the lives of poor black men. The U.S. has instituted a war on drugs the past few decades, and since the institution of the war on drugs, we've gone from 300,000 people in prison to over 2 million people, even though crime rates have not increased dramatically. Drug offenses 
many of them for nonviolent offenses, account for the majority of this increase, particularly targeting black and brown people. And research clearly shows that African Americans, those who are most targeted by the war on drugs, are not any more likely to sell or use drugs than any other racial group. However, black men are incarcerated for drug charges at vastly higher rates than particularly white people. In some states, as high as 50 times as much incarceration for black men as whites. Racial minorities in poor communities are disproportionately targeted in their surveillance, in arrest rates, and in charge,、uh, the sentencing rates. There's different sentences for different types of drugs. And the impact of mass incarceration is much more than just imprisonment. So when people are imprisoned and get felony charges, which you can get for certain kinds of drug、um, sentences, it is perfectly legal. To deny access to that person to housing, loans for college, food stamps, other forms of public assistance, voting, all of that perfectly legal. And this has a spiral effect on the lives of people coming out of prison. And as I said, racial minorities, particularly black men, are disproportionately targeted in this mass incarceration. And these dynamics are clear in Rochester. 25% of adults who were sent to prison from Rochester come from areas within just 7% of the city's adult population. These are neighborhoods of concentrated poverty, of racial segregation that have a long history of why that exists. Almost one in three is admitted for drug offenses, and 92% of those are black or Latino. Again, these groups, research shows, are not any more likely to use or sell drugs. This is an example of institutional racism. So, thinking, talk, I've talked a bit about drug arrests, but this is true of the criminal justice system in general racial profiling, different kinds of sentencing for、um, various kinds of crimes. So, it's not just about drug arrests.、Um, within Monroe County, African Americans are arrested at a rate about six times higher than people of other races. So, as I said, you've seen this in the news, in your news feeds about Ferguson, which is about the kind of larger issue of the criminal justice system more broadly. And I think it's crucial that we understand the context of the anger and the pain that we've seen exhibited in the protests since the, the initial incident, as well as through this week and、um, the、uh, ruling of no indictment. These are complex issues. There's no simple answers. And I think we have to sort of dwell on that a bit because we like simple answers. We like to put things in boxes and we like to explain things. And as I said, I think this is an area where we need to sort of let this press on our souls. It's complicated. This is not about an individual incident. This is not about one death, one police officer, one grand jury, one prosecutor. It's about a system. A long history of these kinds of dynamics that I've been talking about with institutional racism. It's about a feeling that since the dawn of this country, with slavery and many other forms of oppression, for many communities of color, this has not been and still is not a safe place. One could even argue 
It's a place in which people experience exile, the kind of exile that we just sang about in Okami Manuel. The responses to what's happened to the verdict has been, as I'm sure many of you have seen, sort of varied. And as I said, we're often quick to try to problem solve, to explain it in simple answers, and we often turn to the colorblindness as our, our root out. We're past race, where we've moved on, this isn't about race. I would argue that that minimizes the suffering. The suffering for centuries, the suffering for years, the suffering for months, the suffering for days, that communities of color all around this country experience all the time. It's not about pointing fingers and saying this individual is problematic for some way, reason. The reality is we are all complicit. All of us, every single one of us in this room is complicit in the system that operates in this country. Even if it's hard to see the direct tie, as I said in the beginning, we all either benefit or are hurt by systems of inequality and injustice in this country. And it's not about pointing fingers at any one individual person. Instead, it's reflecting on our own role in participating in a system that is so deeply unequal in all sorts of ways, and I'm just highlighting one here. I think as we walk through this season of Advent and this time of recognizing that we are a community together longing and hoping for the coming of the Messiah, we need to recognize the ways that we are interdependent, which is sort of hard in our, our culture of being proud of being independent people. But I would argue that Christ calls us to be interdependent, that we need each other, that we are to be a community for each other. And I think that idea of interdependence is an important starting point for trying to grapple with these tough issues of institutional racism or other kinds of institutionalized oppression and inequality. That we don't all make our own lives what they are. We are affected by each other. We affect other people. And that's sometimes hard, as I said, to wrap our minds around because we have lots of pride in being independent. But the more that we can press towards understanding how we're interdependent, that someone else's pain is our pain. And our pain in the best types of communities is also someone else's pain. And that sense of interdependence that what affects our brother or our sister also affects us. So, as I said before about feeling the weight of this pressing on us, I think that what's happening in Ferguson, if we understand that as contextualized with a long history of pain and oppression and a sense of interdependence, how do I understand how I fit in? How do I feel someone else's pain and make it also my pain? How do I see the ways in which I participate in this system of institutional racism? It should press down on our souls. It should make us angry. And that angry should, anger should move us to action. It should not crush us. It should move us to action. And as we experience Advent, Advent is a time of hope. It's a time of recognizing the ways that the deep darkness in which we live longs for the light of the coming Messiah. 
And so the great news of Advent, of the gospel itself, is that we don't have to do this on our own strength. We don't have to grieve on our own. We don't have to mourn on our own. We don't have to lament on our own. We don't have to be angry on our own. We don't have to be confused on our own. We don't have to not know all the answers on our own. We don't have to learn on our own. And we don't have to seek to dismantle systems of injustice on our own. Christ came as a baby in a lowly manger to humble, humble Galileans, entering a world of structural evil, seeking to dismantle systems of oppression. And we see these themes in the songs that we sing during Advent. So, O come, O come, Emmanuel, the lines that we just sang this morning. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. O Holy Night also has a lot of these themes. One of the lines is, In his name all oppression shall cease. So again, may we let the weight of this press on our souls. Let's not try to push it aside, push the discomfort aside. Let's learn, let's mourn, let's grieve, and let's partner together and with Christ to bring the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. What this looks like for each of us may be different. Um, So Artisan is working through this season of Advent and building in some intentional ways that we can all contribute to social justice in Rochester and around the country. But for some of us, it may look a bit different how we each get involved. I think that we want to um, have our hearts break for the things that make God's hearts break. And for some of us, that might look a little bit different. So as we walk through this time, I would encourage you to not push away the the feelings of discomfort, um, not trying to figure out easy answers, but instead let the weight of the complexity of our world press on our souls, and encourage us to look more and more towards how we can be part of bringing the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And before Scott um, comes up, I just want to close with a prayer um, that's written by Jane Darren, a prayer for the Lord of Justice. We long for your coming, O Prince of Peace. Lord of Justice, the advent of your kingdom is our prayer, as are our acts of hope, our work of discernment. May we be awake to the suffering and inequities in our world as the wise ones recognize the holy star. May we look and glimpse the signs of God amid the dark night. Thank you so much. I really appreciated one of the things that Melody said, which is that we can't jump to solution so quickly as we might wish we could. You have to, one of the reasons that Advent is worth observing is because it asks us to dwell in the anticipation, which sometimes, as I said, means dwelling in the pain and the unfulfillment and the not yetness of our world. Um, So if you were expecting me to come back up here and sew this up with some Bible verses, you are going to be really disappointed. (laughs) However, I do believe that uh, Scripture contains wisdom and uh, words that we need to hear. We want to be shaped by that. And in in this case, um, 
I was fascinated to see that one of the lectionary texts comes from First uh, Corinthians, the first chapter of First Corinthians, and it says something which sent me kind of on a on this rabbit trail, if you will. Felt like it at first into spiritual gifts, and I think that I see this connection. And I want I want to ask you to come with me on this rabbit trail for a minute. And um, again, this is not intended to sew up the <laughs> the wound uh, prematurely. But I think it gives us a, a clue, perhaps. It gives us a step to take. It gives us a theological grounding about what the nature of humanity is. All right. So here's the passage from 1 Corinthians 1, 3 through 9. And um, I'll just read it to you. If you'd like to follow along, you can look it up in your Bibles. This is Paul writing the letter to the Christians in Corinth. And he says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He tells them, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that has been given you in Christ Jesus. For in every way you've been enriched in him, in speech and knowledge of every kind, just as the testimony of Christ has been strengthened among you, so that you are not lacking in a spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. He will also strengthen you to the end so that you may be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful. By him you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. See what he says in verse 7. You are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now the word wait, I think, is a cue for us. It's, a, it's an indication that this is adventy, right? This concept is about waiting. And as we wait, Paul says, we are not lacking in any spiritual gift. Now, if you grew up going to church like I did and went to a Christian college like I did and continued on in the Christian world professionally like I did, you would have by now seen approximately 178 different um, versions of a test that you can take. You answer some questions about yourself and it spits out this result, which is your spiritual gift. And you're supposed to take that to your pastor and say, sign me up, pastor. Right? I am not a big fan of that, that particular process being worked out in that particular way. But the truth of the matter is that the New Testament is filled with this concept of spiritual gifts. Paul writes about this a lot. And so what I'm going to do now is back up the dump truck of the Bible and tip up (laughs) the loader part for uh, you for a couple of minutes. I'm going to read you these passages about spiritual gifts. I don't expect you to be able to find them quickly enough to follow along, but if you're like a sword drill expert, you might be able to. Um, But I want to do this so that you can see, I hope, how this concept of spiritual giftedness might have something to say to us about the despair that we see in our city, particularly of institutional or systemic racism. And I will be brief and fast here. Um, I really only want to tell you two things about this. One is that spiritual gifts are for our unity, and two is that spiritual gifts are for our common good. Okay. So here, let's start with Ephesians chapter 4. And uh, I'm putting some ellipses in here and things, so if you're following along, you probably will miss where I'm doing anyway. So let me just read this to you. There is one body and one spirit. 
But each of us was given grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. Remember that phrase. We must grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knitted together by every ligament with which it is equipped, as each part is working properly, promotes the body's growth in building itself up in love. He says that we were given grace according to what? According to how much we deserved it, according to how smart we are, according to how handsome we might be, according to whether we've done any of this work yet in the community and really are good at it. No. According to the measure of Christ's gift. It's not our own merit. So if you feel like, oh man, this is really hard. I don't know what, I don't think I have anything to bring to this. You are in the right spot. This is one of the great levelings of the playing field that happens in Christianity, or should. I think the table is one, and I think spiritual gifts is one. Because every believer is given gifts so that he or she can become a working part of the body. Now, the NRSV uses the word members. You've heard occasions when the word member means a part of the body. That's the idea. So if you see members, just think of it as parts. It's not membership in a club, which is why I bring that up, not to be flippant or coy, you know, cute about, about the language. It's not membership in a club. It's partness in a body. Right? Over and over and over again, this fact that we are all parts of one body is used by Paul as rationale arguing for the fundamental human equality that ought to be present as we express ourselves as the body of Christ in the church. Okay, that's Ephesians 4. Romans 12 says this. By the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, many parts, and not all members or parts have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually we are members one of another. Individually we are part of each other. If Lord Business were here, I am pretty sure he would say, what a load of hippy-dippy baloney. Right? Oh, we're all part of each other. This sounds like something out of the 60s, Right? I apologize to those of you who were there in the 60s and loved it. The 60s were pretty great. I like music and all that stuff. But we laugh about that kind of language, don't we? Oh, that's just that new agey, hand-holdy, you know, dance around the tree stuff. But it's in the Bible. Paul is not exactly like a little soft bunny rabbit, right? That's not the impression I get from the Apostle Paul. But he says this. We are all part of one another. All right, 1 Corinthians 12. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed. <laughs> That's like the cue that he's going to mansplain something, right? <laughs> like, I don't want you to, I, I want to just fill you in on the details here. Here's what he says, though. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who activates all of them in everyone. For in the one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. 
Now think about the impact of the words he's about to say in the culture he's writing. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. And we were all made to drink of one spirit. God has arranged the body that there may be no dissension within it, but the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together with it. If one member is honored, all rejoice together with it. See how the spiritual gifts are a leveling of the playing field? Because these Christians, many of them were Jews, the chosen people. They were probably enjoying their station in their worldview. They probably liked the fact that they were among the chosen people. And suddenly, Paul is saying, guess what? The Greeks are coming too. (laughs) And the Cretans. (laughs) And all the Gentiles. If you think you are special because of how you were born, that is not how the kingdom of Jesus works. And just, I love that Melody said it, just as she said it. If one of us suffers, we all suffer together. So do you see this theological grounding, the concept of spiritual giftedness gives us when we think about our brothers and sisters in our city, who are on the wrong end of this stick. Many of us in this room, I can look around and see, just with my eyes open, most of us are the beneficiaries of this system that Melody described. But that doesn't matter. Because if one of us suffers, we all suffer. And that's why I've been so frustrated with some of the response. I love that she said, Melody said, it's not about one incident. It's not about one police officer. It's not about one person who was killed. It's not about one grand jury or one prosecutor. We do not have the option of making it about one thing because we can come up with, we're really good at dismissing things when it's just one thing we have to dismiss. You know, whatever it is, cigars, size, Whatever argument you've seen, like it's a distraction. It is a distraction. Can you honestly imagine presenting that side of the argument about these specific things that you want to push the problem away to our friends at Baber? If Reverend Simmons were here right now, would you want to have that conversation with him in that way? It's easy on Facebook. We do not have the option. If one member suffers, we all suffer. All right. So the spiritual gifts are for our unity. (laughs) The spiritual gifts are also for our common good. Paul says this elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 12. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For what reason would we be given gifts if not to use them in bringing about the reality of God's kingdom in our world? It's nice to think about a leveling of the playing field. It's very theoretical. 
that would make for a nice blog entry. You could share it. It would probably get likes. When you think about the fact that we are then called to use our giftedness not just as a rationale for theoretical equality, but for the bringing about of the common good, when you start talking about getting butts out of seats and into neighborhoods, it's not quite so attractive a concept. It's not quite such an easy thing to to, to say or do. Because we don't know what to do, do we? I get it, man. What do you want me to do, Pastor? I've been inspired this morning. I want to take some action. What is the thing I can do that will fix this problem? If any pastor knew that, <laughs> this wouldn't still be a problem, probably. Uh, we'd, we'd find a way. But let me, let me give us just half a step in a direction that I think can help. I want you to think about the leveling of the playing field by the Holy Spirit who gifts us all. And about the fact that we need to work together for the common good. See, it doesn't just come about when one part of the body works, right? If, if, if the hand wants to swim <laughs> and the leg wants to ride a bike, you get nowhere. We have to be together. I don't know anything about how to solve the problems of the world, especially this one. What I think I do know is that we will get closer to it when we are in relationship with other people. When we are with relationship with people who are oppressed. When we are with, in relationship with people who do not look or talk or act like us. We have worked really hard uh, the leadership team and I, over the last year, to facilitate that kind of relationship. We have tried to pave roads between churches and communities and make opportunities for people to volunteer and serve in areas which will take them out of their comfort zone. We have tried, and it is up to you to walk those roads. So, I leave you with that. It is not a solution. I did not sew up the hurt in our world with a pretty Bible verse. I think what I have done is lay a theological groundwork that argues for human equality and given us a first step to take. That's, that's really, uh, you just have to take a step. It might not be dead true north. But if you, don't, if you just stand there, you can't get anything done. Have you heard my analogy about the car recently? Trying to steer a parked car is pointless. <laughs> Especially if you don't have power steering. But everybody has power steering. Now, you can, make that, you can make those wheels go back and forth and back and forth. I want to go over there. I want to go over there. Until you put that thing into drive, or for the real drivers among us, into one, you're going nowhere. You are going nowhere until you start to move. And you might need to go back there, but you have to start going this way. And then turn the wheel. If you're not in motion, you're going nowhere. All right. So let's get in motion a little bit. Let's take steps. Let's build some more relationships. Let's listen and ask to hear from other people. All right. I need to stop. Um, and you need me to stop. <laughs> and once again, our children's teachers need me to stop.
Give them a big hug, will you please? They've been working hard this last couple of months. It seems like we go long a lot for them. All right. I said earlier that the other great leveling of the playing field in Christian theology is the table. And I want to invite you now to participate in the sacrament of communion together. I talk about this in a lot of ways today. I want to think about it as an act of unity, communion with each other, with other confessing Christians around the city and around the world. Everybody who comes together to take this uh, is made one in Christ. You don't need to be a theological expert or a member of our church. This table is open to you if you are seeking to follow Jesus and live in his kingdom and be subject to him. We're going to sing a couple more songs together. I invite you now to come to this great theological leveling, the Lord's Supper. Let's continue to worship him together. Amen. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.